text for the sermon this evening is Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. We'll read that first, and then we'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11 through 13. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were, you, were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. 
But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant words. May God bless the reading of his holy scriptures unto our hearts. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we consider this evening from Ephesians chapter 4 describes for us the spiritual gifts which Jesus Christ gives unto the New Testament church. Jesus Christ gives these gifts from his vantage point in heaven. He is ascended up on high. Verse 6, rather verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Jesus Christ went up, raised by the power and the glory of God himself, in order that blessings might come down upon the New Testament church. These blessings, we understand, are spiritual blessings, spiritual gifts that the Ascended Savior bestows upon his church. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is sovereign over everything, including everything physical. And yet the blessings that he bestows are primarily spiritual blessings that he gives to the members of his church. Fundamentally, the blessing that he gives unto the church is the Holy Spirit. All of the blessings that we receive as members of the church are given to us through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the gift poured out upon the church at Pentecost that Jesus Christ gives to his church by the work of the Holy Spirit God perfects his church verse 12 for the for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Let's consider this text this evening under the theme, God's perfecting of the saints. First, we'll consider the work. Second, the means by which God accomplishes this work of perfecting the saints. And then third, the gift change from what I put in the bulletin, the gift. Looking especially at that word in verse 11, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. God's perfecting of the saints, the work, the means, the gift. For us to understand the work that 
God does in the church, we must know something of what is the church of Jesus Christ. This text teaches us ecclesiology. It teaches us what is the church of Christ. And it gives unto us a beautiful description of the members of the church. The church consists of saints, which saints are the body of Jesus Christ, who are knit together in the unity of faith. We begin by looking at this description of the church, the word saints, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. Saints are holy ones. That's what makes these saints beautiful in the sight of God. They have been made holy. The basic idea of holiness, we understand, is that of consecration unto God, being devoted to Jehovah, and then conversely being separated from all that is evil. A person who is a saint has then been set apart by God. When we speak of saints, we might be hesitant to use that label to describe ourselves. For when we think of saints, we might be inclined to think of a pious, maybe someone who is an extra pious member of the congregation. And perhaps that label would apply to that individual. But to use the term to speak of myself, I am a saint, it hardly seems fitting, we might conclude. But that is an erroneous conclusion. For frequently throughout the scriptures, whenever the inspired writer speaks of the church, he describes the members of the church as being saints. You are holy because God has set you apart. Think of the holiness that was required of Old Testament priests. If the priests were to enter into that most holy place and offer a sacrifice unto God, they had to be set apart for that work. There was special clothing that the priests were to wear. That clothing was not determined by the priests themselves, but someone else, God, through his word, directed the priests as to the special clothing that they were to be adorned with as they entered into that most holy place. By that clothing, those priests were distinguished. They were set apart from the rest of the people. Well, so it is then for you and for me. We are adorned with clothing. And this clothing sets us apart from the people of the world. What is this clothing that distinguishes us? Is it not the robes of righteousness that Jesus Christ earned for His church by His death on the cross? A church made up of saints. And then the verse goes on to describe the church as being the body. The end of verse 12 for the edifying of the body of Christ. And the idea here is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and then we who are the members of the church comprise the body. The head would be incomplete without the body, and the body would be incomplete without the head. But together there is a unity that completes the whole, head and body joined together. The entirety of the universal church makes up one body. We do not speak of several different bodies that make up the church of Christ, but there is one body. 
earlier in this chapter, Ephesians 4, verse 4, Paul spoke of that. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Within that one body of Jesus Christ, there are, however, many different members of that body. Just as a physical body is comprised of different aspects of that body, there's the torso, and there are the limbs of the body, there are fingers, and there are toes in that body. So it is that in the body of Jesus Christ, there are a variety of different members that make up that one body. There are men and there are women. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. There are those who are bond and those who are free. The unity of the church is not the autonomy of the church, but the unity of the church that which holds the church together and unites the church unto Jesus Christ, who is her head, is faith. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of faith. Faith is what holds the members of this body together. It's not necessarily that all the members of the body share the same opinions or judgments about the things of this earth, but what holds them together is they all have come to know Jesus Christ, love Jesus Christ as their head, and this they submit to Jesus Christ as their head. That's implied in this idea of body, is it not? If Jesus Christ is the head and we are the body, the head is that which controls the body. The head is sovereign over the motions, the activities of the body. Well, just as is the case physically, so is the case spiritually. The church, which is the body of Jesus Christ, is governed by Jesus Christ. The attitude of the members of the church is that they have reverence for the head. They submit unto the head. They willingly surrender themselves unto his power. Such is the church. Saints, those who are holy, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who belong to that one universal body. And yet the church, so long as she remains upon this earth, is imperfect. She is, according to this text, in the midst of her own edification. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints for the edifying of the body of Christ. The necessity of the church's edification and being perfected is the presence of sin within the body. There are indwelling infirmities which blemish the beauty and limit the desirability of the church. The church is comprised of saints, to be sure. People who already now are saints, but they are not perfected saints. They are saints who have spiritual flaws and spiritual wrinkles. Stains on their clothing, which stains come from impure thoughts, unholy desires, sinful coveting, lusting. We have said of the church that she is the body and that Jesus Christ is the head. And legally and officially, that is the case, that Jesus is the head of the church. But oftentimes, is it not the case within the church that the members do not live as though Jesus Christ were 
the head. The reality is, oftentimes the members of the church live as if she has two heads, a double-headed monster. At times, she submits to and obeys the headship of Jesus Christ. But then at other times, the church submits to and listens to the rule of the devil. There are times where the members of the church can be quite rebellious against the headship of Jesus Christ. Especially that rebelliousness shows itself by rebellion against the ones whom Jesus Christ has called into office. Rebelling against the work of the elders as the elders bring an admonition to repent. Just as the Israelites of old were caught up with the spirit of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and led a rebellion against God's appointed leaders in the wilderness, so it is the case in the New Testament church that there are times that members of the church become caught up in a spirit of rebelliousness. And so it is necessary that the church be perfected and edified. Perfection. It's a hard thing for us to understand while we're on this side of Jordan. It's something that we strive for. We wish that our work could be perfect. And yet we always fall short of that mark of perfection. The meaning here of the word perfecting, perfecting the saints is this. It means sufficiently to equip someone for the responsibilities that they have. Sufficiently to equip someone for the responsibilities or callings that they have. Might illustrate it this way. Imagine that there is a nation and that nation has come under attack from a foreign, hostile nation. A nation which is now under attack must prepare its defenses in order to guard itself against the attack. So they begin by mobilizing troops for battle. The way that they mobilize troops is by equipping these troops, giving unto them, the soldiers, what they need so that they are sufficiently prepared to go into battle against the enemy. The army general does not just select at random certain young men and then without giving them any training, without giving them any weapons, without giving them any defensive armor, then sending them off into battle. That would be, we would say, foolish of that army general to do that. But instead, first he equips them, and then once they are sufficiently prepared, then he sends them off into battle. And that's the idea here of this word, perfecting, for the perfecting of the saints. The idea is that the saint must be prepared for spiritual warfare. There's battle. Jehovah God, as it were, the army general, is sending us off to fight. But God does not send us off to fight without first equipping us, without giving unto us the spiritual weapons that we need as we are engaged in this spirit, against the spiritual adversary who is the devil. God sets us in our proper place so that there is order and not chaos and confusion among the saints. God is the one who equips us to fight. And then the church as well must be edified. Verse 12, final phrase, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And here the Apostle Paul, by the work of the Spirit, borrows a word from the construction site. Edify. 
build up, to construct. You can hear the sounds of the modern construction site, the rumble of the cement truck as it mixes the concrete and then pours that concrete on the ground, the zipping of the power saw as it cuts through the two-by-fours, the pounding of the hammers as the hammers beat the nails into place, the shouting of the crewmen as they communicate one to another, laboring together to construct this building. Here the Holy Spirit teaches us that it is the body of Jesus Christ which is being constructed for the edifying of the body of Christ. He uses two different figures here. The one figure is that of a construction site, a home being built. On the other hand, there's a body. And yet this is not confusion of figures, but these two figures work together. The body is being built up. We might use this sort of language today that one who is into bodybuilding must be very careful in what he eats. The bodybuilder has to have proper nourishment for his body so that his body can become physically strong. Well, just as it is the case that the bodybuilder must have a proper diet, so it is in that the body of Jesus Christ, the church, must have a proper spiritual diet by which diet she is built up, she's made strong so that she can resist the advances of the enemy. More and more throughout the ages, God is at work edifying the body of Christ. But how? How does God accomplish this? The means by which God edifies and perfects the saints is described for us in the 11th verse. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Of all of the ways in which God could have edified, built up, the body of Jesus Christ, the means that God has ordained in his perfect wisdom is by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Four different categories the Apostle Paul gives unto us here. The first three categories were temporary offices given unto the church. The first three, apostles, prophets, evangelists. The word apostles emphasizes that this individual is sent out. He is commissioned, as it were, by a king. He's given a specific mandate. He's given a specific place where he must labor. He's given a specific word specific message, and his duty is as sent by the king to bring that message unto that particular people. Apostles consisted of those who had been witnesses of Jesus Christ and witnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ. There were 12 apostles plus one, the apostle Paul, who on the road to Damascus was a witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Apostles were not given a particular location, a church where they were called to labor, but apostles would labor in one place for a while and then as sent by the Holy Spirit would then move to the next place 
and to the next, and so on, following the lead of the Spirit. The next category, prophets. Prophets emphasizes an individual that was given direct revelation by God. Someone who is given the ability to understand what is the will of God. Oftentimes these prophets, as they were given direct revelation by God, were also able to foretell future events. That was the case, for example, with Agabus. Agabus in Acts foretold that there was going to be a famine in the land of Palestine. And as well, Agabus foretold that the Apostle Paul, when he traveled into Jerusalem, was going to be captured there. And so there's the category of prophets. And then next, there's the category of evangelists. Evangelists served oftentimes in an assistant role unto the apostles. Evangelists had not necessarily been eyewitnesses of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. So the evangelists would accompany the apostles as they went out on their missionary journeys. Examples of evangelists include Philip in Acts 21 verse 8 and Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. But these three offices, the first three listed, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, were all temporary offices, which the ascended Jesus Christ gave unto the early New Testament church. It was a period of rapid and sudden transformation as the church was ushered from the Old Testament into the New Dispensation. And so for that special period of time, when the church multiplied rather quickly, thousands were added even daily unto the church, God gave to the church these special offices of apostles, prophets, and evangelists. The only two offices which continue until this present moment in time are the, the office of pastor and teachers. Pastors and teachers. I understand these two pastors and teachers to comprise one office. It's the office of pastoral teaching. The word pastor means literally to shepherd. So it brings to mind the idea of sheep, of themselves vulnerable, unable to find food and water for themselves, who must be led into the green pastures besides the still waters, who are vulnerable and who need then the protection of the shepherd. That's the idea of pastor, one who feeds the sheep of God and who labors to protect them against attackers. Teachers. A teacher is one who imparts knowledge, in this setting imparts biblical knowledge unto the student so that the student grows in understanding of what the will of the Lord is. The teacher is also one who has authority over the student. It's not the case that the teacher and the student are equal in authority, but the pastoral teacher has authority over the student. It's authority that is not derived of himself, but it is authority that comes from the very message that the teacher brings. Because there is authority and power in the Word of God, 
as the teacher then brings that word of God, there is authority and there is power in the instruction that is given. The instruction is not merely presented unto the student for the student to determine if he's going to accept that instruction or reject that instruction. But because the instruction comes from the Word of God and is the proclamation of the words even of Jesus Christ Himself, as the words of the teacher go forth, then those words have power over the student. The goal of education is the transformation of the pupil. It was assumed among Greek and Roman philosophers that the teacher sought to shape the student into the image of the teacher. Through their teaching and through their lifestyle, the instructors would mold the students so that the students resembled the teacher. Luke 6, verse 40, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And so it is then that God uses these means, the means now especially of the pastoral ministry by which his church is perfected. The connection between verses 11 and 12 make that clear. God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, of the body of Christ. This is what God in his wisdom has decreed will be the power by which his church is edified. We can hear, as it were, the sounds of the spiritual construction site as God is at work edifying the body of Jesus Christ. The sound of the spiritual construction of the church is not the sound of the cement truck pouring concrete. It's not the sound of the hammer pounding the nails in, but rather the sound of the spiritual construction of the church is the voice of Jesus Christ as Jesus works through the pastoral ministry to edify his church. You can hear the sound, the melody of comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably, to Jerusalem. You can hear the sound of Jesus Christ as he teaches, not in weakness, but with authority. Matthew 7, verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribe. You can hear the sound of the construction of the church, which is this, sound doctrine, which is the spiritual meat, the healthy diet by which the body of Jesus Christ is built up stronger and stronger. Sound doctrine, which proclaims unto God's people the finished work of Jesus Christ, delivered for man's offenses, raised for our justification. Let this be emphasized, beloved. Jesus is the one 
who perfects his church through the means of the gospel ministry. Not for one moment am I saying or thinking that I, as the minister, am the one who performs the work of perfecting the body of Jesus Christ. But it is Jesus Christ ascended up on high who gives spiritual gifts unto his church, who efficaciously performs that work of perfecting the saints through the means of the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is the pastor who shepherds the sheep. Jesus is the teacher who disciples his followers and so shapes his followers that they are transformed into the image of the great teacher. Jesus is the shepherd who protects his sheep from harm. And oh, what it cost Jesus Christ to function as the shepherd of his sheep. Required of him to lay down his life at Calvary. That his sheep might be given spiritual meat and drink and protection. Jesus is the one who gives unto the church pastors and teachers. And Jesus then gives unto the pastors and teachers the content of their message. The pastor does not find his message in the newspaper. The pastor does not find the content of his message in the headlines of the news. But the pastor finds the content of his message from Jesus Christ himself, who has given unto his New Testament church the complete scriptures. Who would be so bold as to resist the God-appointed means of preaching and teaching whereby his church is built up. Who would be so proud to say, I do not need the preaching and the teaching. I believe that the scripture is of private interpretation. And I can interpret the scriptures by myself in my own home and don't need to come to church. who would dare to be a sluggard and say, I cannot find it within myself to come and focus on the Word of God as it is preached in God's house. This is the means that God has given us for your perfection and for your edifying. This is God's gift. Verse 11, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Man does not insert himself into office Man does not have an idea that he wants to have authority. He wants to have power. And so he then seeks to thrust himself into that special office in the church of pastor and teacher. No. God raises up men to be pastors and teachers. God prepares them. God uses, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1, weakest means to fulfill His will. What the world considers foolishness, God uses for the edification of His church. Oh, to be sure, God uses means to raise men up for office. God uses even the means of 
cultivating within a young man a desire for the gospel ministry. And that desire for the office of pastor and teacher is not in and of itself a wrong or sinful desire. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. If a man desire the office of bishop, he desireth a good thing. Yet let us understand that God is the one who by the work of His Holy Spirit gives unto that man the desire for office. God equips him for that office. And God strengthens him then for that office. God gives the gift of pastors and teachers to the church because God loves the church. God is concerned for the peace and the protection of Israel. God's will for Israel is that they be blessed. So God, in His tender loving care for the church, gives her pastors and teachers. Two final applications. First, let us be thankful then for pastors and for teachers. And I want to be careful and clear here in exhorting you to be thankful for pastors and teachers. This is not me implying that you have not been grateful for my labors in your presence not for one moment is that the implication of this calling I am confident of your support for me and I'm thankful for that support this is not a word specifically for you as you relate to me but this is a call generally let us be thankful for the gift of pastors and teachers whom God has given unto the church. Let this gratitude that we have for pastors and teachers be evident in the way in which we speak of those who are called into office in the church. May our children grow up in an environment where they know that mom and dad have respect for the gospel ministry. And even at times where there can be disagreements with those in special office in the church, yet let that attitude of respect be evident unto those who know you well. Let us be thankful for this gift that God has given. And then, finally, let us pray that God would be pleased to give us more such gifts for the church. May God be pleased to grant unto us pastors and teachers who can understand the Word of God, rightly divide that Word of truth, and then proclaim with clarity and with love, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. We understand that God is sovereign in giving this gift that Jesus Christ is the one who has ascended up on high, who led captivity captive, and who, give, give, who gives gifts unto men. And we understand that the will of 10,000 people upon this earth would not be sufficient to change the will or the mind of God. If it is the will of God that there be a dearth of pastors and teachers, then no amount of pleading on our behalf is going to change the mind and the will of God. We understand and we believe that God is sovereign in sending pastors and teachers. But let us also remember the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. God is pleased to give His grace and His Holy Spirit only to those who with sincere 
desires. Continually ask them of him. Let us beseech God for pastors and for teachers. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. That, verse 31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we do give thanks unto thee for thy gift of grace unto thy New Testament church. We thank thee for thy concern for Zion. We thank thee that thou dost construct the walls of Zion through the preaching of sound doctrine. Wilt thou use the word that was preached in this evening to that end? Wilt thou comfort our souls and edify us unto life everlasting until at last we come to the unity of faith in Jesus Christ? Provide for us men, called by thee, equipped by thy spirit, who can preach Jesus Christ. Wilt thou hear graciously this prayer. Amen. <laughs> 